scripture reading is Matthew 1, 18 to 25. It's up on the screen or in your Bibles. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, the heart of Christmas is the merciful heart of God poured out for the nations of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray now that as we meditate upon the verses that were just read, I pray again as I prayed earlier, Lord, that this would not just be a, an observance of an historical event, but I pray that the living Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would manifest yourself among us now. Show us, Lord, the truth, the reality, the application of this story to each of our lives. I pray that you would glorify yourself and satisfy us with yourself. And so now I pray for eyes to see, I pray for ears to hear, and I pray for your glory to be revealed. And I thank you for what you'll do, Jesus. In your great and gracious name, I pray. Amen. Well, we don't know what time of day it was when it happened. It could have been morning, could have been noon, could have been night, might have even been in the middle of the night. And we don't know where he was when it happened. He may have been in a private prayer room in his house. He may have been in the temple complex in Jerusalem seeking the Lord. He may have been out for a prayer walk, desiring to commune with God at the Mount of Olives or maybe down by the Jordan River, we don't know when it happened, and we don't know exactly where it happened, but by the grace of God, the Lord saw fit to see that we knew something about what happened to him on that day. In the year that King Uzziah died, who was an ancient king of Israel, the prophet Isaiah was granted a soul-gripping, life-shaping, world-shaking vision of the glory of God Indeed, he saw not a figure of the glory of God, but he saw the actual glory of God manifest in the temple of God that was and is in heaven. Isaiah was granted a very rare and literal sight of God, and what he saw there was God high and lifted up, exalted above all things and seated on his throne, reigning over all the nations, reigning over all of this universe. And I just want to take a moment to say, to press into our hearts, that Isaiah was not seeing a a vision of the temple that was in Jerusalem for so many centuries. 
He was not being granted a vision of the second temple that would be built there later after Solomon's temple was destroyed. Isaiah was seeing the literal, visible, actual throne room of God, the temple of heaven, and he was seeing the literal glory of God. This is not a metaphor. This is reality. Isaiah was one of among only a few men in the history of the world that was ever granted that sight, but he was granted that sight. And as he beheld the glory of God high and lifted up and exalted, he noticed that the robe of God filled the entire temple, which I take to mean that the glory of God saturated that place. And he looked there above the presence of the Lord and he saw two angels flying. Each of them had six wings. With two of their wings, they covered their face out of reverence for God. They were pure beings. They still are to this day. They never have sinned. They never will sin. And yet, they shield themselves from the holiness of Him who created all things out of reverence for Him. And with two wings, they covered their feet out of reverence for God. And with two wings, they flow, flew opposite one another. And as they flew there above the presence of Him who created all things, they shouted out with a loud voice and a passionate voice and authentic hearts, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And when Isaiah heard these voices, and I do believe that he heard the voices, He saw that the foundation of the temple that is in heaven itself shook with the power of God and it filled up with the smoke of the glory of God even as the tabernacle had filled with the smoke of the glory of God in the deserts east of Egypt which we saw a couple of weeks ago. And even as the smoke of the glory of God filled up the temple of God when Solomon finally built it and dedicated it to the Lord, and it's so filled with His glory that not even the priests could do their work there, well now Isaiah saw a similar vision, but it was not in the shadow of things to come. It was not in the tabernacle or Solomon's temple. It was in the very temple of heaven where God dwells. Isaiah saw it, beloved. He saw it. And it was glorious. But when he saw what he saw, he was not so much comforted as he was struck to the heart. He felt that he would be destroyed because in that moment when he saw God, he knew that the being of God was not just a subject to be studied. And the holiness of God is not just an attribute of His being to be admired from a distance. But the God who is holy is the standard of all being. And by that standard, Isaiah would be judged and the nation of Israel would be judged and the nations of the world will be judged. You and I will be judged. And when Isaiah saw that holiness, he knew in an instant that that was true. He knew that his life did not measure up, that the lives of his people did not measure up. And so the Bible doesn't say what he did with his body, but I can't imagine that he did anything but fall flat to the ground before the Lord. And he said, woe is me, I am undone. Now what I, I take those words to mean is that Isaiah felt that his body would literally fling apart. I mean, I wonder what it would feel like if you and I somehow traveled very close to the sun. We would feel like we were about to be consumed. And I think that's what Isaiah felt. I am about to fling apart in the presence of the God who made all things. 
I am a man of unclean, unholy, unworthy lips, and I live among a whole people of unclean lips. Woe, woe, woe is me. Isaiah, I'm sure, thought that his life had come to an end at that moment because of the surpassing glory of the holiness of God. God is holy, but praise be to his name, he's also merciful. The Lord said that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And because of that, God commanded in that moment that an angel fly over to Isaiah with a coal from the throne of God, the altar of incense before God, and touch his lips. And the angel did just that. The angel took a pair of tongs and grabbed a coal from the altar of incense and flew over to Isaiah and singed his lips, touched his lips, purified his lips, and spoke these words. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, if I'm counting right, I think that in the Bible, you could count on one hand the people who were granted a vision of the glory of God like that. It was so visible, so literal, so powerful, so soul-shaking, so life-shaping. And I want to ask the question, why was Isaiah one of those few? Why out of all the peoples on the earth was this man chosen in his time to see the vision that he saw? Well, right after the coal had touched his lips, the Lord himself spoke up and, and asked a question. He said, who shall go for us and whom shall I send? And Isaiah spoke up and said, Lord, here am I, send me. And so God, by His grace and by His might, put His Spirit in Isaiah and He did send him to the world to humbly and boldly proclaim the word of the Lord to Israel and to the nations of the world. The Lord granted Isaiah exceedingly glorious visions of His purposes for Israel and indeed for every person and nation on this planet. And probably, certainly, more glorious than anything Isaiah saw is God showed him in his lifetime that one was going to come to this earth and be born on this earth, one who was glorious, one who was the Creator, one who would be worshipped in heaven and on earth forever and ever and ever and ever. Yes, it's true. It's a provable fact. And I would love to talk with any of you who don't believe that. I will do anything I can to help you see that this is a fact. 700 plus years before Jesus Christ walked this earth, a prophet named Isaiah told details about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, and about his reigning over the nations forever and ever. He even prophesied about the end of the world, and the world will come to an end, Probably not in 2012, but whenever God says it will, it will come to an end. And Isaiah spoke about these things in detail of the 16 prophets who wrote about Jesus in the Old Testament. Isaiah was certainly the clearest, the, the most persistent, the most specific. And since he was going to be granted a vision of such glorious things, he needed to see a vision of the glorious God who was going to make these things come about. One thing he needed to see was the power of God that was able to do what he had promised he would do. 
And another thing that had to happen was Isaiah had to be humbled before God so that when he saw these amazingly powerful visions, he would not be puffed up and prideful. He needed to know that God was God and he was not. He needed to know that no matter how much God used him, he was just a humble, sinful, broken, forgiven man. He was one of those drug dealers caught in the house and God forgave him. Isaiah was no greater than any one of us. It's just that God graciously chose him. Why? Because God chose him. I don't know why. But Isaiah had to see the vision he saw so that he could fulfill his purpose on this earth. And his purpose was not about him. It was about mainly Jesus. And it's about us. It's about the nations of the world. One of the early insights that God gave Isaiah into the life of Jesus is found in Isaiah 7.14. You don't need to turn there because Matthew quotes it in chapter 1, verse 23 of his book. Here's how Isaiah put it. He said, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I don't know that Isaiah understood it would take seven centuries for this to happen, but he did certainly understand that the prophecy was that God would take on flesh and God would do that through the body of a virgin woman. Two chapters later in chapter 9 verses 6 through 7, Isaiah says this about the child. Let's just be clear about who he thinks this child is. For to us, A child is born to us, not just to Mary, not just to Israel, but to us. A son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How's this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Beloved, those names are God names. Amen? He is saying, this child will be God And it is a provable fact that he wrote centuries before Jesus Christ was born. It's one of the reasons why I am a Christian and why I believe there are provable facts that were told about the life of Jesus well before the life of Jesus. Indeed, Isaiah saw glorious, glorious, glorious things. And glory be to the name of God. One day, another angel visited a young woman and told her something was going to happen to her that was so glorious that she I'm sure she couldn't believe it. She was young. She didn't know anything about life. She was very young. And yet what the angel said did come to pass. Mary was betrothed to a young man named Joseph. And as I said last Sunday in the Hebrew culture, betrothal was a a legal uh, contract. It was not like our engagement. In our culture, if you get engaged, you can get unengaged. And you don't have to tell anybody that you're engaged or that you got unengaged, right? You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. No problem. 
in the Hebrew culture to get engaged or what they would call betrothed, you actually had to go down to the legal offices and file papers and be legally engaged. And the only way to break that engagement was for the man to file divorce papers. You had to divorce in Israel to get out of engagement. So her relationship to Joseph was very serious. But because they were betrothed and not yet married... Mary had not yet been with Joseph intimately, and yet she found herself with child. And women, any of you who've had children, you just got to stop and think about that, ponder that, what that must have felt like for Mary, even though she knew that this was going to happen because the angel told her, which you can read in Luke chapter 1, it still must have been just amazing when she felt this baby kicking and moving and growing inside her and she knew that it was born of the Holy Spirit, that it was born not of men, but born of God. This was a glorious, glorious thing. The prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled. Joseph caught wind of this, and for whatever reason, he was really troubled by this. He may not have believed her. I I don't know exactly what was going on in her, in him, if he thought she was just crazy or if she was lying or whatever. I don't really know. All I know is that in his ponderings, he had decided to divorce her quietly because he was a righteous man. I take that to mean two things. Joseph was righteous in that he did not want to offend God and live with the woman who had compromised their marriage before they had even been married. He didn't want to do that. So he wasn't willing to enter into that kind of relationship. He was just going to divorce her. But the other thing that shows Joseph was righteous is how merciful he was to Mary. You see, under the law of Moses, Joseph could have had Mary killed for being pregnant before they got married. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23 and 24 says, If a woman is betrothed to be married, and she is found to have slept with another man before she's actually married, she and he are to be killed, stoned to death. But Joseph was a righteous man. He was merciful, like his Father in heaven is merciful. And so he didn't live by the letter of the law, but he lived by the mercy of God. And he determined, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to divorce Mary and just leave her into the hands of God. I'm just going to let this go, and I'm going to move on with my life. Believe me, beloved, this was a very difficult time for Joseph, and it was a very hard decision for him. But I don't know, maybe he couldn't even sleep. I know if I was in that situation, I would have a hard time even sleeping through the night, just pondering all the difficulty of what happened and what I should do and what I shouldn't do and all these things. But one night, he did get some sleep, and while he's sleeping, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and speaks to him. Now sometimes, and I think probably each of us has had these kind of dreams at one point or other in our lives, sometimes a dream is not just a dream. Sometimes... Things happen in our dreams that are so real that our consciousness in dreaming is just as real as our consciousness when being awake. It's very real. It's very powerful. It's life-shaping and impactful. That's the kind of dream Joseph had here. The angel of the Lord literally came to him and said, Joseph, son of David. In other words, you're in the line of prophecy here. You're in the line of the great king. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that Mary's done something unseemly. She hasn't. Don't be afraid of your family and your friends and your neighbors and the religious leaders. Don't be afraid of the shame that might be upon you all the days of your life as you carry this question mark over your life. Like, did he, did, did he do it? Did she do it? Is there infidelity in their marriage before their marriage? Don't fear any of that, Joseph, because I'm here to tell you Mary's not lying to you. She's not lying to you. The Holy Spirit 
Himself, God Almighty, the Living One, Creator of heaven and earth, the One who fills the temple with glory. He Himself has caused her to be pregnant, and when she gives birth, the child will be a son. And I want you to name that son Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, for He will take away the sins of His people. Wow, what a dream. I'm sure that in that dream, Joseph was stunned. I would have been stunned. Stunned by the knowledge that his wife was pure when he thought that maybe she was impure. Stunned by the knowledge that the presence of God impregnated his wife-to-be. Men, think about that. Ponder that. Think about your wife this week. Ponder what it would be like for you to get the news that God directly caused her to be pregnant with child. What a stunning glorious thing. And I'm sure that he was stunned not only by the name that this child was to be given, but by the reason for which it was to be given him. And let me explain to you what I mean. The name Jesus in English is Yeshua in Hebrew, and that name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name that God said to Moses and to others in the history of Israel God said, that's my name. And that name means I am. I take that to mean that God is saying others are pretenders to my throne. Other things and beings claim to be God. Other nations point to things and say that is God. But I alone am God. I am. My name is I am. Existence, being is about me. And so I take that as my name. I am. In the early days of Israel, there was a young man who led Israel in battle and won their first victory. And so God changed that young man's name to Yeshua. We call him Joshua. Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. And the idea was that God saved Israel through this man. God did the saving, but He did it through the military might of Joshua, who God had made strong. Jesus is given the exact same name as Joshua had, Yeshua. And believe me, there's a connection there in the mind of God. But there's a huge difference between the Old Testament Yeshua and the New Testament Yeshua. The Old Testament one, as I said, was but an instrument in the hands of God who saved His people. The New Testament Yeshua, Yeshua, Matthew says, that this Yeshua will Himself save His people from their sins. This is God in the flesh coming to make right the relationships He has with His people. This child will be God coming to save His people. He is the Yahweh who saves. The child is God. Believe me when I say, beloved, that Joseph being a God-fearing Jew and a Bible-reading Jew would have understood the implication of the name of Jesus and the reason given for it. He would have understood the claim that Jesus is God, come to save His people. And every Jew who has ever read this text, believe me, they get the point whether they believe it or not. The claim is that Jesus Christ is God. Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit because Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the fulfillment of a seven-century-old prophecy that God would come and dwell among us. He is God. This is why Matthew so quickly in the next verse goes to Isaiah and quotes the verse. What is he doing? He's trying to ground his claim in the historic, prophetic, 
authoritative record of the speech of God to the people of God. He's trying to say to the Jews, listen, I am not making this up. This is not coming from my imagination. This is the fulfillment of a long-told promise from God. Here's what Matthew says in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Don't stumble over the fact that Jesus isn't the name mentioned there in verse 23 because Jesus goes by many names. Emmanuel is one. Jesus is one. Mighty God is another. Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. He has many names. Don't stumble over that. This is now the third time, beloved, in just a few verses that Matthew presses on the fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin because He is God in the flesh, which means to me that this is Matthew's main point in verses 18 to 25. It's a big deal to him. It's not a peripheral doctrine to him. It's not debatable. It's not compromisable. This is the truth of how Jesus Christ came into the world, born of a virgin by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was a righteous man. Oh, did he love God. I would have loved to have Joseph as my daddy. He was a lover of God. And when he woke up from that dream, he did everything God told him to do. He married Mary. And yet he abstained from sexual relationships with her until the day that the son was born. And when that son was born, he obeyed God and named him Yeshua or Jesus or Yahweh saves. And he knew in his heart of hearts, even though I'm sure he had his seasons of doubt that this child was not just a child, but he was God in the flesh. This child grew up and became strong. He became a a man. And he lived a perfectly righteous life before God in that he never sinned. And he became perfectly obedient to the Father all the way until the day the Father said, take up your cross and die for the sins of the world. And as a vindication of both the life and the death of Jesus, God the Father raised him from the dead. Yes, Jesus Christ was in a grave for three days, dead as dead could be, and God gave him life again, and he walked out of that grave. He taught on this earth for 40 days after that. And Minnesotans, you'll love to hear the news that he ate fish after his resurrection, maybe in heaven. We'll fish and eat fish together, maybe. And he taught and he preached and he loved on his people, and 40 days later, he ascended to heaven in the sight of his disciples. And right now, He's seated at the right hand of God where He reigns the nations of the world from the true temple, the true throne room of God that Isaiah saw with his eyes. Jesus right now is in the place that Isaiah beheld. And I praise God for that. Because of everything I have just said, Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life because He came to save us from our sins. And the simple way we're saved is by saying yes. Just like Kevin's excellent illustration, all we have to say if we're that drug dealer in the house is, okay, yes, I agree, I'll come out. God will do all the rest. Amen and glory to His name. In order for all of that to be true, The virgin birth has to be a historical reality. It has to be. I want to take a few minutes with you now to defend that doctrine because from the 18th century down to our time, people have tried to undermine the doctrine of the virgin birth. They've either said that it's a myth that never actually happened as a historical event, 
or they have said that it was unnecessary, that Jesus didn't have to be born of a virgin, and therefore he may have been, he may not have been. These kind of people fall into three camps. Some of them are Jews who don't want Christianity to be true. I understand where they're coming from. I don't agree, but I understand them. Then there are liberal Christians, like the pastor of this church right over here. Would love to debate her about this issue sometimes. She rejects the whole Bible. Therefore, she rejects the historical reality of the virgin birth. There's a lot of liberals arguing that, to be honest with you. I'm not that concerned about them. They're clearly out of the pale. They're way off page with God. It's easy to spot the error. You know who concerns me? is people inside the evangelical church who call themselves Bible-believing Christians and their teachers and preachers and have a prominent place even in the publications of Christianity Today and other places like that. And they are undermining this doctrine. They are saying that it may be a myth. They are saying that it didn't have to happen in history. And I'm here to say, yes, it did have to happen. And yes, it did happen. So in order to protect the flock of God from error, and in order to inflame your hearts with the joy that this doctrine is supposed to ignite in your heart, I want to take just a couple of minutes and give a defense of this most precious biblical teaching. Now the argument of those who are trying to undermine the reality of the virgin birth is very, very simple. It's alarmingly simple to me. It's, it's this. They say that Isaiah 7.14 has been mistranslated That Isaiah didn't mean to say that a virgin would be with child, but that a a young woman would be with child. So our Bibles read, I'm sure every one of your Bibles reads, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But they say it should be, Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son. So not virgin, but young woman. And therefore they say, because the text was mistranslated, this doctrine has been developed off of a foundation that was never really there, And therefore, biblically, there's no need for a virgin birth. There was no prophecy of a virgin birth. But they're very, very sorely mistaken. So let me just take a couple minutes and respond. It is true that the word virgin more literally means young woman. That's true. But let me tell you why. Hebrew, if you've ever studied it, I know a couple of you have studied Hebrew a little bit. You'll know this. It's a simple language. And it has relatively few words. Greek is rich with words. Hebrew is not so rich with words. In the Hebrew language, they don't even have a word that only means virgin. They don't. But they do have a word that means young woman, and that refers to a woman who is of marrying age, but has not yet been married, okay? So it's a young woman who could be married, but she hasn't been married. In our culture, we can't assume that a woman in that category is is a virgin, right? We can't. I'm on the board of Abba Pregnancy Center and it breaks my heart when I hear story after story after story of 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds already amazingly sexually active. Unfortunately, I doubt that it's the, it's the exception to the rule anymore. But in their culture, it was a, 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 an assumed fact that a woman who could be married but was not yet married was indeed a virgin. Of course, there were exceptions to the rule, but they were just that. They were exceptions to the rule. So this word in Hebrew, it's alma. It means young woman. It's used seven times in the Bible. And four times it very clearly means women who have not been with a man. It means a virgin. So when you get to the other three times, and Isaiah is one of those, it is not unacceptable or a mistranslation of the word to render it virgin. That word means a young woman who hasn't been married. 
In that culture, it implied she was a virgin. Now, a couple more quick things. Two centuries before Jesus Christ was even born, Jewish scholars translated their Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. And oh, at this point, am I ever glad they did that. Because when they took the Hebrew words and put them into Greek, Jewish scholars who spent their whole life pouring over the Word of God and loving the Word of God in its original language, they took that word, Alma, young woman, and translated it into Greek to say, virgin, Parthenon. That word means virgin. So the Hebrew scholars, 200 years before Jesus, their verdict is this, yes, Isaiah prophesied that a young virgin woman would be found to be with child. Not just a young woman, but a young virgin woman. That's what Isaiah was saying. Now they may or may not have believed that Jesus was the answer, but their verdict is clear. Their verdict is clear. This is not a mistranslation of Isaiah in chapter 7 verse 14 to say that he's prophesying a virgin will have a child. Then when we get to the Gospels, we get to the New Testament, of the four people who wrote a biography of Jesus, two of them talked about His birth, and both of them affirmed and pressed this fact that He was born of a virgin, impregnated by the Holy Spirit into the body of that woman. The other two writers don't mention the virgin birth. And you know why? Because Mark doesn't even mention the birth of Jesus at all. He's like anxious to get to the heart of the story, so he just, boom! He just gets right into, so Jesus started going out and preaching and telling everybody to repent. That's how Mark's gospel starts. John didn't mention the virgin birth. Why? Because he wrote later than Matthew and Luke, and I think he looked at these guys' gospel and said, Amen, they've already dealt with that issue. I want to make another point in my gospel. I want people to understand that Jesus didn't become God when He was born. I want them to understand that He has always been God. And so James Vanderlinden read the text for us today. In the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. And the Word was with God. And more than that, the Word was God. So John's passion is to say, Jesus is and always has been and always will be God. For those who dared to touch on the birth of Jesus, they both affirmed strongly that he was born of a virgin. And so with that, I rest my case. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It's now a matter of faith. Do you believe or don't you believe? And if you don't believe, I just want to ask you, why not? Why is it so incredible to you that God could not do this? He created the heavens and the earth. He fashioned every human being with his fingers. What's the big deal that God could cause a virgin to be pregnant? It's nothing to him. Nothing to him. So why not believe? Seven centuries before it happened, there was a prophecy and then it actually did come to pass. And with that in mind, I want to take just another three minutes and say something about the glory of the virgin birth because this teaching, beloved, is not just an idea to be pondered. It's a reality that's meant to set our hearts on fire with worship for God. And I've really, all week, I mean this, I've been praying all week that pondering on the virgin birth would cause all of us to really worship this Christmas season. I'm going to have a lot of fun tomorrow exchanging presents, and I mean that. We do some silly things in our family, and I have some silly surprises for my daughter especially. I can't wait to do that for you. But amidst the silliness, I promise you, early in the morning, I'm going to be up, and I'm going to meditate on the glorious things God has done, and this heart is going to worship. And I mean that. I'm not putting on... And I pray that every one of you would find a time amidst the fun to worship God for what He has done. 
The reason that this teaching of the virgin birth is so important and so beautiful and so awe-inspiring is that only God in the flesh could save us from our sins. And in order for God to be in the flesh, He had to come in this way. Jesus could not be born of the seed of a man, a seed that's corruptible and sinful. He had to be born of the pure, holy, incorruptible seed of God, and He was born that way. He had to come that way in order to do what we could not do. And there's two sides of that. One is, He had to fulfill the law for us. He had to obey the law perfectly for us. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has looked God in the face and said, No, I will not do what you have told me to do. And, and the price for that is massive. That's a huge thing in the mind of God. And the price for that has to be paid. And so Jesus on the one hand came and He obeyed the whole law for us. So now whoever believes in Him, it's as if His obedience goes on to you and it's like you have obeyed God perfectly throughout your life. It's really like that. Now, if I was to obey perfectly and never sin in my life, my, my obedience would not be transferable to you because I'm only a man. And my obedience is only worth what my being is worth. Okay? Jesus Christ, because He is God in the flesh, is infinitely worthy, and so His obedience is infinitely worthy. And His obedience is so rich and full and worthy that anyone who believes in Him, He has enough in His account to transfer that to my account, to your account, to the people of all the nations of this world account. And then in obedience to God, He went to the cross and He shed His blood to pay the penalty side for our sins. And just as it was with His obedience, so it is with His blood. His blood is worthy because He is worthy. He is God. He is eternal. He is high. He is lifted up. And all of those things are true of His blood. And when I come to Him and say, Jesus, I am guilty and the only hope I have for forgiveness and eternal life is if You forgive me by Your blood. When I do that, He says yes and He covers all of my sins. And in this way, by fulfilling righteousness and paying my penalty, both things, He escorts me back into the presence of God, where I will be with Him through Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Beloved, that is the glory of the virgin birth. No virgin birth, no salvation for the nations of the world. But with a virgin birth, with a God-man impregnated by the Holy Spirit in the body of a human being with a God-man, there is salvation for the nations of the world. There is hope for us. That is the glory of the virgin birth. And so there's only one thing left to say, and that is believe in Him. Look to Christ and believe. And I say again, if you have never believed in your life, I just want to simply ask you, I mean this respectfully, but I, I really do mean it this way. Why not? Why wouldn't you believe in Christ? He is unbelievably merciful. As merciful as He is glorious. And He's here today to stretch out His hands and say, Come to Me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will forgive your sins. I will restore your relationship with God. And you will live with Him forever and ever. Why say no to that? This life is like a drop in the bucket. Eternity is forever. Trillions of years. Why not receive the life that will be true life then? And if you've already believed in Christ, I just want to invite you one more time to ponder these things with me. 
Don't let familiarity with the teaching to blind you from the glory of the teaching. Take Matthew 1, 18 through 25 tomorrow and maybe even tonight and ponder it. Think about it. Pray about it. Let the Spirit open your eyes just like He opened Isaiah's eyes. And when He does, worship Him with all your heart. That's the design. That's the design. Truth is designed to open our eyes to see the glory of God that our hearts might worship the God of glory. And I pray that would happen for us. Let's pray. Father, this is no mere talk for church. This is reality. You are God, and you took on flesh, and everyone who believes in you will be forgiven of their sins, and they will live with you forever and ever. I pray now, Father, I've preached your word as faithfully as I knew how, and now I pray that you would take your word, the seed that's been planted in our hearts and minds, And I pray that you'd make it sprout and grow and produce all the fruit that you've already appointed for it. And I give you my thanks because I know that you will do that. In the great and gracious name of the Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.